When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and today I am honored to be speaking with Dr. Salah Hatem and Jafar Jodhri about their project, which is called Creating an Intangible Cultural Heritage Teaching Module for Iraq's National Undergraduate University Curriculum, Bedouins of the Iraqi Southern Desert as a Case Study. And this project is sponsored by the Nahrain Network at University College London, of which Dr. Jodhari is a co-director. The Nahrain Network has as its mission to foster the sustainable development of antiquity, cultural heritage, and the humanities in Iraq and neighboring countries. Doctors Hatem and Jodhari are both assistant professors in archaeology at the University of Al-Qadisiya in Iraq. And today I'm really excited to learn more about and to share with you some of the work that's been done so far on this project, which involves documenting and preserving the intangible cultural heritage of the Bedouin in southern Iraq, as well as developing a teaching module on intangible cultural heritage for use in Iraq's university curriculum. So thank you, Dr. Hatem and Dr. Jodhari, for joining me today. You're welcome. So could you start by providing some context about the Bedouin of southern Iraq, who you're working with for this project, and what are the aspects of their cultural heritage that you're seeking to document and to preserve through this project? You know, we have uh, in Iraq, the term Bedouins in Iraq, referring to things, uh, the Bedou uh, that, uh, let's say, dealing with or using camels, and the Bedou that use uh, sheep. So two things, both of them actually, they live in desert. Uh, so when we start, uh, they live in, you know, from the north of Iraq, middle of Iraq and south of Iraq. We have uh, this project and we should decide which 
type of Bedou we are going to study and in which area. We cannot study whole of Iraq. We cannot study whole of types of Bedouins. Uh, so then we met, we met and discussed the issue and we decided that we should study the western part of Iraq, the southwestern part of Iraq, which cover three main provinces, uh, Najaf, Samawa, and Basra, and, and uh, of course, Nasiriya. So four provinces, they contain the two types of Badus, the Badu that, that using camels and the Badu that using sheep. And we, des- we decided that we study uh, the Badu that they don't, they don't have a house in the, far, in, the, in the cities or villages. So totally nomadic people, traveler, they don't have any home or house in, uh, in the villages or you know, cities. So let's say uh, Bedouin 24 seven. Uh, but of course they, they stay in the, in the desert in a, a specific season. And back to the, let's say floodplain where Tigris and Tufatibs there in uh, a different and a specific period of time within the year. But uh, generally they don't have a house in the floodplain. They, all, they only use nets and uh, other things. Uh, so this is the uh, main idea of the project. Uh, why we selected Bedouin? Because you know we don't have any idea as uh, scholars, as a public, as students. Of course, we don't have any idea about that. Uh, and uh, of course, it is intangible heritage. Uh, we always focusing on archaeological side, the tangible heritage, but nobody cares about the intangible heritage. That's why the, pro- the, the project is really important and Nahal Network funded it and we have an amazing team started to work on it. Salah and his team actually divided the area into four teams. Each province uh, has a team. So Najaf, Samawa, Nasriya, and Basra. When I say these provinces, I mean the desert part of this uh, provinces, not the floodplain part, because you know Najaf has the desert and the floodplain. Samawa has desert and floodplain, and as, uh, as such, Samawa, uh, Nasri and Basra. So that the team started two months ago. They went to the desert and met the Badus, and they have a list of questionnaire. Uh, and of course, when they went there, they took with them like a gift, and they were. They dressed or wear clothes to the same the Bedouins, kofia and covering head and you know, yeah, similar the Bedouins. Uh, and uh, of course, they started to, to introduce themselves to the Bedouins. Uh, and of course, we have uh, our task is to interviews not only the men. We should uh, interview children, uh, women, tribe leaders, diff- different categories of Bedouins. Uh, so uh, let's say 20% of our interviews with women, 20% with children, 40% with tribe leaders, and the rest with the other types of uh, Bedouins. And we, we started the interviews, and each two weeks we sit and then discuss uh, or debriefing uh, interviews. And we conclude that, you know, some point that Salah will talk about. بالحقيقة 
So uh, the first point is uh, that the Bedouin actually they put themselves away from the governments, and the governments actually put uh, the, uh, themselves away from them. So there is no connection between the Bedouins and the government. They don't have any representative in the parliament. They don't have a public figure that can speak to the. Uh, 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 any type of a government. So that's why they been neglected uh, from all the governments that, that led Iraq. Nobody cares about, nobody cares about them. Uh, nobody looks after them. We don't have uh, statistical uh, information about them, how many they are, how do they feel, are they okay? Uh, and, you know, lots of uh, political issues uh, uh, actually, uh, you know, raised during the last uh, 30 years. Uh, we have, you know, there is no border, there, there was no border between uh, Iraq and Saudi Arabia, Kuwait uh, and Jordan. So they used to, you know, travel uh, from Iraq to the other to neighboring countries. Uh, and always uh, the Iraqis government punished them, actually, for traveling, for breaking the law. But in the same time, uh, the Iraqi government doesn't offer something. So it's just punishing, not offering uh, things. So they, uh, uh, so that's why they, they, they feel themselves as, uh, as a target of the government. Uh, when we go there, they they afraid of us. They, uh, they think we will... Uh, you know, like prosecute them, or we know their uh, wrongdoing, because they they think that uh, you know their activities is against the law. They feel that the Iraqi government make them made them feeling that they are outlaws or something like that. So the first conclusion is that there is no relationship between, or there is there is a bad relationship between them and the Iraqi government. Yeah. For the second uh, result that they found, just to give a little bit of, you know, background about the Bedouins in Iraq, which um, Jafar had mentioned right before, um, the, the Bedouins in Iraq are seemed almost like an outcast. They are very forgotten within society. And so um, there is this disconnect between, you know, the Bedouins. There's not a lot of research done. And so um, this project is really important because they, they, they're looking at this, uh, you know, very important, you know, part of Iraqi uh, heritage um, and, and learning about them more because, you know, the government hasn't been involved and there hasn't been any studies. And that's what, you know, Dr. Salah's team has found um, within their studies. So they are very forgotten. Um, but what they realized also is that uh, these people who've lived in the desert have learned to cope within very extreme heat. So um, he's talking about how it extends, they, they extend between, um, we'd say like West Ramadi to the borders with Saudi Arabia and Kuwait almost. And, you know, if you look at a map, that's mostly desert. So they've learned how to, um, through inherited knowledge from their ancestors and, and whatnot, they've learned how to, uh, you know, find water, so there's special plants that they use, um, which is called akul. Akul, I don't know how to really translate it to English, but uh, also cacti to find uh, water. 
Um, and also they've learned, like they've inherited a lot of medicinal, um, traditional medicine, and that's how, you know, they treat, you know, themselves. So they're very, um, just like how we don't know much about them. They've, they're really afraid of also interacting. And that's one of the findings he's found is that the children were very afraid of them when they, when they went there. To what you just said, it sounds like there's this issue of the distrust between the Bedouin and sort of the external society. So I'm wondering what your strategies are for overcoming that lack of trust that the Bedouin might feel towards you as these sort of external researchers um, who are attempting to kind of study them but what those strategies that you've developed are for being able to gain information from the Bedouin. And then you also mentioned uh, the questionnaires and the series of questions that you ask Bedouin. And I was wondering if you could give some examples of specifically what those questions are and what specific types of information you're soliciting from them. No, I'm just going to answer the second question, which was uh, the questionnaire, since I have a list here of basically okay, what they were, and then um, Dr. Salah could uh, elaborate more. But uh, they were they were looking at um, you know a, a lot of their inherited culture, so their dialect, their accent, how they look at beauty, and uh, you know how they celebrate, for instance, weddings, or how they um, how they grieve also um, when they have you know someone who passes away. Um, they looked at their, you know, gatherings, how they um, teach their children, if they do go to any public schools, um, you know, the role of young women and the role of um, elderly women as well. Um, again, they also looked at, you know, the different uh, types of uh, medicine that they've inherited, so traditional medicine. Yeah, so and just, you know, their general uh, day to day life. So that was the questions they were looking at. Uh, in terms of our strategy to extract the, the uh, information or the knowledge from the Bedouins, we have a list to follow before we go to the desert. Wearing like them, dress like them, I mean, speak like them. Uh, and of course, we should have a guide, uh, a friend, a mutual friend between us and them. So when we go them, they at least know one of them, know very well. So it should be driver or uh, someone else. So we he took to them and introduced us to them so they feel uh, comfortable. Uh, and then we, we start to uh, ask them. They, they of course, uh, speak with us freely because they trust the person uh, who uh, accompany, accompany us. And it's worked. It's worked very well because otherwise they will not answer our question. They all, sometimes they uh, answer just a general question, not a specific one. So, and, and this is the first uh, strategy. In terms of our goal, at the end of the project, we will write to the Iraqi parliament to make, you know, the quota because uh, there is uh, our constitution. There is a, a quota for the women, for the Iraqi minorities, and we would like to suggest that the Bedouin should have a quota. Uh, and then we should select a representative from the real Bedouins uh, who lives already in the desert to come to, the, to be a member of the Iraqi parliament 
to speak of the, the Bedouins. Uh, and of course, uh, we should teach uh, our students how to respect the Bedouins, respect their, their, their accent, their, their fashion, their dress, uh, their everyday life. Uh, we should not make a joke. We should not insult them. Uh, they are a real part of Iraq. They are the indigenous people of Iraq. Each tribe of Iraq, you know, has a, a Bedouin. For example, my tribe, we share the, the Jodari, for example. There's a Jodari Bedouin, and there's a Jodari living in the, in the city. So they are part, part uh, of us, part of our, our community. And they are suffering, you know, they are not enjoying their life. They are facing the climate change, facing the harsh weather, facing the harsh environment, they, ju they are just need to survive, survive. They are, you know, safe people. They are lovely people. Uh, we should take care of them. We have the resources. They don't have access to the uh, public money. We do. We should convince them that they should believe in the state, in the border. And in their mentality, they think there is no border of the desert. The, the, the desert is open. There is no border, but we put the border. We punish them when they cross the border. Uh, we don't don't offer any uh, service uh, to them. No clean water, no paved roads, no school for their children, no hospital uh, when they get sick. So uh, they lived in the medieval period. And why we should feel uh, responsible to them. So we will speak about that in a workshop and in, in our curriculum with the decision maker, with the stakeholders. So it's a big responsibility for us, actually. You are, you, of course, we are enjoying uh, doing the research, but it's uh, give us a, a responsibility. For me, I don't know before about their everyday life. I'm now surprised. Uh, yeah, it's a long, long answer, I think. No, that was great. <laughs> OK, Dr. Salah, should we move, should we move to other, uh, another uh, point? With Dr. Salah, or do you have a following up question? No, go ahead. Okay. Um, in terms, in terms of the tents, because they do live in tents, and um, you know, before a lot of these tents were actually handmade, and it was inherited from their grandparents and parents. So they, this was a skill that they actually had. But even this has now been forgotten so they don't unfortunately they don't do these by hand and they import them from syria um i guess it's probably cheaper and uh just more efficient for them but before they used to do them all by hand and uh, they don't anymore so that's a skill that's kind of gone from uh, their heritage it's probably lost their children won't know how to do it either the bedouin society is very patriarchal so there is usually the head um, of the tribe where he's called the Sheikh al-Ashira. And, um, but however, over the past few years, um, it, it has changed. They used to live in big groups, but now they don't. Um, um, the Sheikh al-Ashira, which is you know the head of the tribe, actually would live probably closer to the city. Um, however, they also realize that women in the tribes play a very important role um, and, and economically they, they are responsible for um, a lot of, you know, um, like for instance, they are the camel drivers 
Um, so we are speaking here not of the shepherds, but more of the camel drivers, Bedouins. So they are responsible for, you know, taking care of the camels, um, raising the children and or even organizing the family, for instance, like um, marriages and, and what have you. So, um, but again, you know, it, it has changed significantly how they live over the past few years. So you don't move around as much. Whereas if you look at Bedouins from, um, you know, the Gulf area, they tend to move a lot. But the ones in Iraq, um, that that has kind of stopped. So um, another very important uh, factor here that's been affecting their lives is that they realized there's been a great, um, uh, their land has kind of been narrowing because of uh, agriculture development. Um, so a lot of these lands have been taken to, you know, expand on just, you know, farming, um, but not eat, but not just that. They've also been taking land for uh, brick factories. And so you find that um, their way of life is almost going to be extinct because um, they they can't take care of their camels as they were able to before. Their camels don't have you know the plants that they need to feed them or the water, and so this is is this thing is almost imminent or it's probably happening within the next few years. Um, they're just running out of space. So um, their relationship in, in specific, we're talking about you know the camel driver uh, Bedouins. Um, they they have a very strong relationship, you know, with their uh, camels, and uh, he he just ended with a saying that they say in in their um, in their dialect, where that you know the the camel knows everything, just doesn't have a tongue, um, and so because of this um, loss of land and they can't move around as easily as they did, um, they're they're having to sell some of their camels in order to buy more food for the other camels, which is not a viable solution, as he was explaining to Dr. Salah. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're losing a lot of, you know, their camels, which they find, which they have, a, it's really important to them. Um, this lifestyle for them is more important than anything else. And that's why they want to preserve that as much as they can, even if it means they have to sell some of their, you know, uh, camels to just keep that, uh, so they could keep that and keep living that way. So uh, just a few quick notes here. Basically, um, they they couldn't find, you know, the younger Bedouins didn't know, didn't have um, a lot of knowledge of uh, art, uh, poetry, literature. Um, mostly, it was the elders who have you know, have that passion. And um, unfortunately, they couldn't get any interviews with them, um, again, because they do have that fear of outsiders. So even like I said, the children were very, you know, reserved and just stayed away. Um, another point he makes is um, marriage is always usually within their tribe. So they don't they don't prefer to marry, you know, their um, women or men from people from the city um, as they won't be able to live that lifestyle, that nomadic lifestyle of moving around. 
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The family, the Bedouin families have grown and the ones who are more, a little bit more wealthy, um, especially those related to the head of the tribe, um, have now uh, split their life in between, you know, the city and the desert. So they're able to have these two lives where they are able to um, have a house um, and and live in the city, have a phone and, you know, send their kids to school while having, because they can't afford it, they can have shepherds, you know, in the desert taking care of, um, you know, their goats and their lands over there. Um, and these families, usually a typical Bedouin family is made up of between 10 to 15 people. Um, but uh, because they have to, you know, kind of move with, you know, all these changes that are happening, um, the wealthier ones can, you know, afford to live in the city while keeping their lifestyle, while still going back whenever they need to, especially if there's occasions or weddings or a death in the family, they will have that type of life. Uh, yeah. Shukran, shukran, okay, I think this is what we have for now, uh, because, you know, we are just in the first uh, two months in our work, uh, and we are happy for any question, uh, Margie. Yeah, thank you so much. This is extremely fascinating. Your s suggestion or goals, I guess, for this project of achieving political representation for the Bedouin is not necessarily what I would have expected from a project on cultural heritage. Um, so I'm curious if you can say a little bit more about that, about how you see those two things coming together, um, how you think cultural heritage and the documentation of, and preservation of the Bedouin's cultural heritage can in turn provide them with some political agency? Yeah, uh, we are not politicians. The uh, Nahara Network is not funding a political project. But uh, we are uh, dealing with the Iraqi living heritage. So uh, bringing the past and putting uh, and knowing the future. You know, the, the Nahra Network is uh, how to use heritage to build your society, how to use heritage to thrive the, the, your community. Uh, heritage is a tool. So we are using heritage to value the Bedouin. Uh, and as a result, uh, one of the value of uh, the Bedouin is uh, representative. So uh, it's uh, just a start. The project is uh, just a start. The project will help 
Iraqis, different stakeholders to understand the Bedouins. Once everybody uh, understood the Bedouins, then we think about uh, how to serve them better. So uh, this idea jumped in my mind to call about uh, a representative. Uh, it's like a side effect of the, the project. Uh, we have a uh, lots of projects uh, ongoing here uh, in Iraq. Yeah, for example, we are looking for a dictionary uh, to document the Marsh Arab people. Uh, they have their own dialogue or uh, their own accent, and it's, it's disappearing. Another team funded by Nahrat work working, working in the marshes of Iraq, documenting their unique accent or unique dialect. Uh, so we see we are moving, moving to the uh, north of Iraq, where we are documenting the uh, um, the heritage building that affected by armed conflict. Moving to the uh, east of Iraq, Iraq-Iran border borders, we, we are documenting the, the heritage that affected by Iran-Iraq uh, war. So you see, this is the Nahrin network. We are. You know, as we mentioned, British money funding Iraqi ideas. This is the Iraqi ideas, not the British ideas. We are just funding them. So you see, I mean, that's why Nahrin Network is active. It's live. It's alive. It's funding, not the building. It's looking about looking for the people as well. So one of our aim is to make uh, the society or the community not a great again <laughs> but uh, i mean you know it's a living living heritage so not dead heritage now, right. we are not dealing with the uh, dead uh, only building so uh, when we go to any any city we have like a ancient building an ancient house so we should we should go uh, uh, deep doing interviews digging in the history of this building, not the architecture of the, of the building. So uh, that's why this is the, the new way of, of research in Iraq. This, re, this type of research will benefit the Iraqi community, Iraqi scholar, Iraqi public. Uh, so it's a, it's a, this, is the, this type of research is needed for Iraq in this period of time after the long uh, time of conflicts. That leads me to my next question, which was about the education aspect of this project. And if I understood correctly, part of the goal is to develop a teaching module um, around the results from this project. And so I'm curious about the sort of plans and prospects for that, what that might actually look like as you say there's you know this is about intangible cultural heritage which is something that's harder for us to conceptualize than things like brick and mortar architecture or art or something that we can look at with our two eyes um so i'm wondering about how you're planning to make this sort of intangible cultural heritage concrete um, in order to be able to teach it in universities, for example? Yeah, thank you for this interesting question. Uh, 
you know, uh, in Iraqi system, uh, the uh, archaeology department has four years of uh, study, uh, first, second, third, third and fourth. Uh, each year has two semesters. Uh, each semester has six modules. So you, you see how, how many modules uh, we have. So some of these modules actually are dealing with uh, the, uh, intangible heritage. But in general, uh, not, a, not a single case study from Iraq. We are dealing with the song, fashion, kitchen, tools, yeah, and you know, farming tools, all of these tools, actually, we are looking, this is, this is intangible uh, heritage. Uh, so we're already teaching our students the intangible heritage of the area, not uh, in Iraq in general. So that's why we decided to teach them the Iraqi intangible heritage, not in general. Uh, and we selected the Bedouin heritage because it's, it's much needed, it's more neglected. Uh, and I think uh, uh, the, 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 our students and of course our scholars will be happy and will find it as a really important modules uh, because it's really uh, understandable. We don't need uh, a high, uh, you know, educated people to study it, we will make it easy and available to, to everyone. And we call it intangible heritage. Of course, this module will open the door to other intangible heritage to be studied. So our student and the scholar will think, okay, how about we study the farming, the farmers, also they, they, they do have tangible heritage. How about we study the other professionals and, you know, uh, Haraf, uh, scarves, we call Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we have maybe 10, 15 types of intangible heritage that, that need to be studied. So, yeah, I think we will use, of course, we, have, we, will, we will produce a book, maybe 200 pages with, uh, let's say, maybe hundreds of photos. Uh, link for videos, already taking hundreds of thousands of photos and videos, videos to the Bedouins. So for, my, for me, I went to the desert and I saw the uh, Bedouins there, then I understood, I understood them. Uh, we would like to make uh, a book so our students, they can understand the Bedouin where they are in the university. They don't need to go to the desert to see uh, how the Bedouins looks like, yeah. I'm curious as to what you think the Bedouin want out of this project. I think, you know, you talked about sort of your aims, what you would like to be able to offer the Bedouin. And I'm curious if your, you know, your intentions coincide with what the Bedouin might hope to receive from this project? Or, yeah, do you have any sense of what they would want to see happen as a result of this? Yeah, thank you. Uh, they don't care about our aid. We offer them, yeah, we will write your history, we will go to the government to ask for a representative, 
We will make everybody respect you. This is an important book to be, to be taught in the universities. They don't care, actually. They care about they, they are need service. They need clean water. They need hospital. They need their children to be sent to the school. Uh, so, you know, they, are, they need their everyday life. They have, they have short need. They don't have a long-term plan. They don't know what's happening in the future. And they, they, don't, they do have a short memory. They don't even can cite or mention their fourth uh, grandfather. For me, actually, I can uh, cite or mention my twen- 20th grandfather. So easy for me. I can't stop it now. But for them, they don't, uh, uh, they don't remember their fourth grandfather. And they don't know what's happening in the future. So you see, they are short short-minded uh, because, you know, they live in a they desert, in the they are... Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Jafar, sorry. Yeah, they, uh, they, are com- they are comparing themselves with the, the Gulf states Bedouins. They, the Gulf states Bedouins, they live in privilege. They have a four-by-four car. Uh, uh, their, their government are looking after them. Uh, are, there is a food for, for them and for their animals. Uh, the regulation, uh, regulations are standing with the, with the Bedouin, not against them. The Bedouins are welcome in the cities and villages in the uh, Arab uh, Gulf states. So they, uh, always they, are look, they, they, they wanted to be like, uh, to be treated by the Iraq government, similar to the, what the Arabian Gulf state treating their Bedouins. So they are jealous. They are blaming us. They are always shouting why. Could I maybe ask a follow-up question to yes. that? Um, yeah. So just to clarify, is the reason for maybe the Bedouin in the Gulf states receiving more resources than the Bedouin in Iraq because the Gulf states have more resources to give simply? Or is there also a cultural difference between how those states respectively value the Bedouin? Uh, Very important question. Uh, I think because the majority of Iraq came from villages, farmers, cities, background, so they think that they are everything. They are ignoring the, the Bedouins. The Bedouins is, is less than 0.5% from Iraqi population. Uh, and there is no connection between the Iraqis, they are living in the flood plain, villages, towns, cities, and the, the Bedouin. This is the, the case in Iraq. But in the Arab Gulf states, you cannot recognize between the everyday life of the cities people, let's say, or the, the Bedouins. The same accent, the same uh, tradition, the same dress. They are different just in, in uh, even when they, you know, they are using the same cars maybe. They, they do have houses. So why? Because most of the uh, population of the Arab states came from Bedouins. They don't have rivers, they don't have marshes. So we have in Iraq cities more than 5,000 years old. 
I live in Babylon. The Babylon is more than 4,000 years old. It's a city since, you know, uh, 4,000 years old. My memory is, uh, I don't have any memory out of Babylon. So I was there maybe since 4,000 years old. But, you know, if we look at the Kuwait, Saudi, Bahrain, there was a, just a tribe of nomadic people. And then they became state, became cities and capitals. So they came from Bedouins, 100%. We in Iraq, we are already living in cities and far. We do have little minority of Bedouins. So that's why I'm not justifying that, but that's why we are not caring more about uh, the Bedouins. So I just wanted to thank all three of you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This was really interesting. I look forward to following your project and hopefully seeing and reading more about it. I'm looking forward to the book that we've been promised. And yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Zaina, for the translation. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Thank you for listening. And of course, special thanks to Drs. Salah Hatem and Jafar Jodhari for sharing their work. Thanks also to Zainab from the Nahrain Network who provided assistance with translation during our conversation. I will post links to places where you can follow Dr. Hatem, Dr. Jodhari, and the Nahrain Network and where you can learn more about their work and about this project as it evolves on my Twitter at nomads underscore pod. So please check that out if you're interested. You can also contact me there or by email at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, or if there's a topic that you'd like me to cover in the future. Thanks so much for listening.